talk number six, Come Lord Jesus. Uh, when I was preparing this material to try to sharpen it up and to get some helpful feedback, I said to the staff team, the EU staff team, okay, I'm going to, give, I'm going to write, write these talks and I'm going to give one talk a week uh, at our staff meeting and then you can give me some feedback, uh, which is you know, one of the great privileges to be on the staff team. We get to work together hard over God's Word and it, it sharpens us all up. It's fantastic. But uh, when I'd given the very first talk, which you, you know, you, way back what we had on Monday morning, I gave the very first talk and talked about, you know, the end and talked about Jesus' resurrection. That's what I focused on. Uh, one of the staff, whose name shall remain Alan Ow, <laughs> his comment after the first talk was, where the heck is the dragon? Meaning, I thought this was meant to be about eschatology, it's meant to be about, you know, those amazing pictures in the book of Revelation with the, with the dragon. Where the heck is the dragon? I've come ready to... You're talking about Jesus' resurrection. So maybe that's like you, maybe you came to this week expecting it would all be about the future, all about heaven and hell and judgment and the return of Jesus, the book of Revelation with its beasts, its prostitutes, its dragons. But what we've tried to show you this week as we've looked at all of the scriptures is that this is just, that is just one part of a much bigger story. When it comes to the end of the world in the Bible, there is a bigger story to tell and what we've done this week is tried to look at that Bi the Bible's teaching on where God is taking the world. So just to remind you there on your outline, you can see Monday morning we got that sneak peek at the Christian understanding of the end by looking at the resurrection of Jesus and how the, what, where God is taking the world is the completion of what He has begun back in creation. And Monday night, we trace the Old Testament theme of the day of the Lord, where the Lord comes in fulfilment of His promise in rescue and judgment. They saw that pattern established in the Old Testament. And then Tuesday night, we saw that Jesus is the end. He inaugurates the end in Himself through His death and resurrection and His coming as the Son of Man. Wednesday night, we thought about until He comes, how we live now in the end era of the eschatological spirit which unites us to Christ, points us forward to what's still to come and empowers you to live for Him today. And then last night in the craziest talk I've ever given, when He comes, Jesus is going to be revealed to all, bringing final rescue and judgment. But here's, here's the truth. Even now, having done all of that material, we still haven't covered the full story. There is still a final moment in the future that we have not looked at. We haven't looked at the future for God. And maybe that's a bit of an interesting idea to you, that, that God has a future. See, we started this week with the question... What's the future for the world, the cosmic question, and what's the future for me, the personal question? And understandably, but maybe mistakenly, that is all anthropocentric. It's focused in on human beings. What's wrong with the question is that it's focused in the wrong place, really. We're worried about our future, but 
we probably should ask, what's the future for God if He is the centre of all things? And the answer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there on your page, verses 22 to 28. Let me read to you. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterward at his coming those who belong to Christ. Notice the next bit. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet, but when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Now just just focus your minds. What's the final picture here? Verse 24, then comes the end, the telos, the goal, the purpose, the end point, namely that Jesus hands the kingdom over to the Father after all the enemies, including death, has been subdued. And then Jesus himself will be subject to his Father. That's the end. When Jesus gives it all back to the Father and the purpose there, at the very last verse, verse 28, is that God may be all in all. What does that mean? God is all in all. Uh, Gordon Fee, reflecting on that verse, says this. He says, the ho- he says this means that the whole universe finds its meaning once more in the final glory of the one God. What he's actually doing here, if you read what Fee says, is that he's reflecting on this particular claim, that God will be all in all, in light of what Paul says earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. In particular, in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, Paul says, There is one God from whom came all things, and one Lord through whom are all things. That is, all of creation exists from God through God and for God, the God who is Father, Son and Spirit. So, you know, everything you can see, as you look out on these fantastic, everything you can see, in fact, even the person sitting next to you, have a look at them, not too long, but you know, just look at them, <laughs> and the other side, like, those people sitting next to you, they exist from God through God and for God. That's the truth about your life too. You've been made by God for Him. You know, physicists talk about the search for a grand unified theory of everything. Not that that sort of, you know, delusions are grandeur, but anyway. They are looking for a story that puts all the pieces together into one unified theory. Well, I don't have a grand unified theory. I've just got a grand unified fact. The grand unified fact about everything is that the entire universe exists from God, through God and for God 
And one day that will be fully realised when Jesus returns and God will be all in all. See, the particular part of that picture, from God, through God and for God, the particular part of that, that God achieves in Jesus, is redeeming and restoring our for Godness. When Jesus returns and defeats death and hands the kingdom, redeemed and purified back to the Father, then everything will again truly be for God. It will be for His glory. Uh, you, you probably, unfortunately, remember that rather bizarre story I tried to tell on Tuesday night about when we were expecting our third child and somehow <laughs> Jesus ended up in the kitchen. And if you're just listening to this talk and not the other ones, you just don't understand, okay? Just, just, just. You, you remember the point of that story, though, aside from its bizarre details? You remember the point of the story? What was the point of that story? Sometimes it's just not about you, right? Sometimes it's just not about you. Well, that is the truth of the universe. It's not all about you or even us. It's certainly not just about me and my future. This passage in 1 Corinthians 15 tells you, lift up your eyes and see, it's about God. All of this, all of, the, all of this creation, all the wonders that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all about Him and His glory, that He might be all in all. So all the things that have come from Him and been made through Him will indeed be for Him. That's what we ought to be hoping for. Not just rejoicing in my future with Jesus beyond the grave, as, as glorious as that is. Not just rejoicing in the resurrection of my body when Jesus returned, though that's great things for which we give thanks, but our hope is ultimately not just about me. As God's children, we long for the day when He will receive all the glory and praise that He is due. And we know that day is coming. And so our hope is for the day when God will be all in all. Now, I mentioned it earlier in the week, but just to remind you, when the Bible uses this word hope, it uses it a bit differently from the way we usually do. We use hope in the sense of a possible future, a possibility. I hope Rowan doesn't go on as long as last night. That's certainly a possibility, that I will not go on as long as last night. But the Bible uses the word hope actually in the sense of this. It means the certain future to which you're headed. Your hope is the certain future to which you are headed. God will be all in all. That is the certain future to which the whole universe, including your life, is headed. That's our hope. We know where it's going under God. 
Now, even though that hope is actually about God rather than us, it does, of course, have all sorts of wonderful implications for us, and that's what we've been exploring this week. But again, it's not that we are the focus. Our hope, our future is inexorably tied up with Jesus. He is the end, the end for us, the one who achieves the end in us, and as we saw last night, He's the one who will even achieve the end with us bringing us with Him when He returns. So, point three, the future for us, Jesus. Uh, there's, a, there's a fascinating just little way that the Apostle Paul puts it in the very beginning of his first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul just, in passing, just says, talking about Jesus, he says, Christ Jesus, our hope. See, at its heart, our hope is not tied up with a future moment. Our hope is not, not a mere event in the future. Our hope is a person. Our hope is Jesus. It's all about what He has promised in the rescue He will complete when He returns. In the fact that we're going to be made like Him, our hope is Him. And so the flip side of that truth is if, if you don't have Jesus, then you've got no hope. No Jesus, no hope. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, talking about the reality of their situation, before they became Christians, this is how he describes it there on your page, Ephesians 2.12. He says, before you became Christians, at that time you were without the Messiah, the Christ, you were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, you are foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. And now that's, that's a terribly sad state, isn't it, in which to live? Without Jesus, without God in the world, cut off from the promises of God, without a certain blessed future, without a hope to which you're heading. And yet that's where most of the people on our planet are living, without Jesus and therefore without a certain hope. And that is a tragedy, a terrible tragedy that should make us weep. Uh, elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, Christians don't grieve when, some, when, a, when a Christian dies like the rest who have no hope. When you don't have Jesus, you don't have the sure hope of His promise. Because the hope in Jesus is an absolute game-changer. That's why we need to keep on proclaiming Christ, because there's hope in no one else. That's why our campus needs to know about Jesus. That's why your friends need to know about Jesus, because without Jesus, they have no hope, no certain future in which to rejoice. Now, the really exciting thing I heard over breakfast this morning is that I know of at least one, and maybe there's more, but I know of now of at least one person here this week who made the decision to turn to Jesus. Isn't that fantastic? And you know, one of the reasons that is so super exciting is that that person now has a sure future in Christ. Because when you have Jesus, you have hope. 
not a wish of a possibility. You have a certain future, a hope. How exciting is that? Okay, so part B then, looking to the future, hope. Now, uh, we've thought a little bit about what our hope is. I want us to think a little bit about the importance of hope in our lives as Christians. Now, the reason I'm raising this is because I think actually this is an area of life where as a culture, a Christian culture, we're a bit out of step with the Bible. We're a bit out of step with the Scriptures here. See, in the Bible, hope is a really big deal. It affects every part of your Christian life. I'm not over-exaggerating there. The Scriptures make hope into a big deal. It's right at the centre of the Christian life, right up there, in fact, with faith and love. Now, we've got no problem with faith and love. Faith in Jesus, that's absolutely crucial. Love, it's the, it's the characteristic of you know, what it means to be a Christian, is that you, you live in love to God and love to others. So we've got that. But hope, it's sort of like the Olympics, well, you know, they've run the 100-metre race or whatever is your favourite event. They've run and, yeah, look, there's the favourite and they won the gold medal. And there's that other one who's always got the second. Yeah, that's awesome. And, but that, that person who got third, man, that's just, where'd you come from? You're unexpected. Faith, yes. Love, yes. Hope. I mean, yeah, we know, we know about hope and we, we rejoice in our hope. But right at the centre of your life? the centre of your Christian life that you live each day, hope, this, really, it comes as a bit of a surprise to us. Why might that be? Well, I reckon it's because we are just so comfortable and blessed. Our life, praise God, I know there are serious difficulties and some of you have... have, have have very difficult situations with which you must deal in faith in God. But as a broad characterization, we have pretty comfortable lives. Most people here are not experiencing persecution for their faith, anything like some of our brothers and sisters around the world. Most of us have plenty of food in our stomach. Most of us have a wealth of Bible teaching. Most of us pretty much can do whatever you like. Tertiary educated, at one of the best unis in the country, in one of the richest countries in the world. What have you got to hope for? What, what do you need hope for? Just live in the now. It's awesome. Do you see what I mean? I just think we, we've been so blessed by God that we've stopped looking to the hope, actually, the greater riches that he's given us. It's like C.S. Lewis said, stop playing with mud pies. We're very happy with our mud pies because it's awesome mud. So I think we're out of step here and that's why we need to listen to what the Scriptures have to say. So, three things, three things that hope does. First of all, hope is the engine room of Christian living. Read to you this passage from Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. I want you to try to identify, get your pen out, all the bits of hope that's mentioned here, okay, right? Do some work. Underline, circle, scribble. Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. 
It's bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognised God's grace in the truth. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He's a fellow servant of the Messiah on your behalf and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's enabled you to share in the saint's inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So just a few things to note here on what, how hope functions here in this passage that Paul talks about. First of all, did you notice there in verses 4 and 5 that faith and love are grounded in hope? Faith and love are grounded, Paul says, in the hope reserved for you in heaven. So faith and love spring out of the hope. What is this hope reserved for you in heaven? Well, the answer in this passage, I think, comes down in verse 12, where he talks about the inheritance that we have with the saints. What's that inheritance? You've got to look a bit further away in the book of Colossians to to work it out, I think. But when you read right through the letter, in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it's the hope of glory. The inheritance that God has stored up for us, that one day we will enjoy, is sharing Jesus' glory. And actually in uh, the chapter 3 and chapter 2, Paul then talks about how our life is currently hidden with Christ in God. And when Jesus appears, he says, you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope, to share in the inheritance he has for us, which is to share in Jesus' glory. You will appear with him in glory. And so this message of hope, out of this great message of hope, comes faith and comes love. And this message of hope is part of the gospel he proclaims, Paul proclaims there, verse 5. So when the gospel was preached, the hope that was on offer was part of the gospel announcement. And that's what we've been trying to do this week, actually, is hold out to you the hope that is in the gospel of Jesus. So, you know, the other night I, I asked you, is the fact that Jesus will be our judge, is that part of your gospel, your announcement about Jesus? Because it is part of the Apostle Paul's. Well, here I could ask the same question. Is this message about the hope that we have in Christ, is that part of the gospel you proclaim to your friends? That there's a hope, a glorious hope that we've been exploring this week. Or have you sort of reduced down the gospel to you can have your sins forgiven? Which is awesome, which is necessary, which is precious. 
and is part of a great bigger hope that we have in Christ. Are we proclaiming the hope in this gospel about Jesus? If you want to think about that, you don't have a good answer to that, better do getting into evangelism this semester, hadn't you? Right? So when you hear about it from your staff worker or you see it at a public meeting, get into that course to try to build up your understanding of this gospel and, and be encouraged to share that gospel with your friends. Okay, now the interesting thing here about this passage then is, looking forward to this hope, the last point I want to make from this passage, notice the prayer that Paul prays for them in verses 11 and 12. In light of this hope that they've heard and latched on to, Paul prays that they will be strengthened by God's power for four things in light of this hope. For, and it makes sense when you think about it. For endurance, that makes sense, doesn't it? The hope there of the future, so he prays, so because of that hope, I'll pray that you might endure, persevere. Okay, that makes sense. He also says, in light of this hope, I pray that God, through his power, would give you patience. Well, that makes sense too, that the hope is there and I've got to wait for it. So he prays that you'll be filled with patience. He also prays that they be filled with joy. Well, that makes sense too, because the hope is the great promise, the certain future you have. So no matter how crappy your life, you can have joy in the midst of the crap because of the future, certain, sure, hope in Christ. And so in light of the hope, he also, he therefore prays that they be filled with God's power so they might be thankful well, that makes sense too, doesn't it? See, see, once you get hope, once you understand hope, you understand why we have faith and you understand why we love and you understand why we must endure and why we want to be patient and why we need joy and why we have, can have thanks. All because of the hope stored up for you in Christ, in heaven. Okay, so that's the first thing hope does. The second thing, hope is the wellspring of joy, which well, I've just mentioned there in the Colossians passage, but I, just, I think this is such a significant theme in the New Testament Scriptures that it's important just to sort of look, look at it where it's mentioned in a few places. So one is Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where he says, very simply, rejoice in hope. Because of the hope, you can rejoice. And notice he has some of the other same implications as well. Be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Or in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, which I've tried to draw there in a picture for you. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful verse that is. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in Him so you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's move on. The third thing that hope does is that it is a firm anchor for the soul. I'm reading here from Hebrews chapter 6. For God is not unjust. Hebrews 6 verse 10. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for His name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the, same, for the final realisation of your hope so that you won't become lazy 
but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, God swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So a few just simple points about hope in what's a deep and, and you know, a rich passage. He says there in verse 12, if you want to obtain the hope, like you've got the hope now, if you want to obtain what's promised there, that certain future, you need to persevere in faith. Verse 12. You persevere in faith in order to experience the realisation of that hope. But he says, our hope is very sure though, it's confirmed by two unchangeables, namely God's character and God's oath. That's meant to be an encouragement to us. This is not just a future that may or may not happen, this is just not a possibility. He says, don't worry, God has guaranteed this hope by His own promise. So, just because he, he's made a promise and because of his character, that's two unchangeable things. He, he, he cannot lie about this. It is certain and sure, this future. And as a result, he says, this hope, therefore, is an anchor for your life. It is safe and secure, verse 19. What's the most certain thing in your life? What, what is the anchor that you have as you're buffeted around by all the winds of your life? Is it that you went to a good school? Is it because you're at Sydney University? Is that the anchor for your future? Is it that you come from a good family? Is it because you think you're a good person? What's the anchor for your life? Is it because you're popular, you've got lots of friends, so that makes you feel secure? Is it because you're just incredibly smart? I mean, you look around and you try to be gracious about it, but they're all a bunch of dummies compared to you, and you know it. Like, what, what, where's your security? Is it because you're heaps cooler than all these pretty daggy and just culturally unaware Christians? Where's your security? The anchor that God gives, that the only anchor that is truly safe and secure, the anchor that actually is an anchor, is this hope in Christ, the future He has promised in Christ. That is the true anchor for our life. And as He says there, our hope is based on the atoning work of Jesus that Jesus has entered into the inner sanctuary of the spiritual temple 
in heaven and, and He has done everything necessary to secure our forgiveness and our adoption, our justification, our sanctification. It's based on the atoning work of Jesus. So those are some things that hope does. I want to then think about what should you do with hope? And there's two things I think the Bible tells us to do then with hope. Grow in it and hold firm to it. So first of all, grow in hope. How do you grow in hope? Right? You have this hope, God's told us about it in the Scriptures. That's the great future hope that He holds out, the promise, the certain, certain sure future. How are you going to grow in hope? Well, He says a, a couple of ways. First of all, grow in hope through understanding. Paul prays this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I pray that the perception of your mind might be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the glorious riches of His inheritance among the saints. It's, that's, what the, that's why we did annual conference on eschatology, so that this prayer in your life might be fulfilled that your eyes of your mind would be opened and to, to perceive the glorious riches of the promises He has for you. Grow in your understanding. How are you going to do that? Now, I was going to say, how are you going to do that this semester? How are you going to grow in your understanding of this glorious hope? You need to read your Bible I'll be more precise. You need to get God's Word into your mind. You do, can do that by reading the Bible on your own. You can do it by reading the Bible with others. You can do it by coming to EU public meetings, actually saying, you know what? On all the other stuff I'm going to learn and I have to do, sit my exams on, the thing I really want to grow in this semester is actually understanding this hope. So I'm going to... I'm going to get to my EU small group where we open the Bible together. I'm going to get to church every Sunday. I'm going to come to the EU public meeting and actually attend. And, and actually... Paul prays this prayer for them, that their eyes and their mind would be open so they might perceive and grasp the glorious riches of this hope. Is that your ambition this semester? And I might say, follow Paul's example here, I think, and pray. <laughs> pray for a greater grasp of his hope for us through his word. The second way, though, that I think we can grow in hope is through suffering. Notice how Paul puts it, Romans 5, verse 2. We have also obtained access through Christ by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions. Now, that sounds a bit weird, rejoicing in the hope, yes. He says, but not only that, we also rejoice in our suffering. Well, hang on, why? Well, there's logic to it, which he draws out. We rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So the dynamic to notice there is this movement from suffering, experiencing suffering through to hope, 
by enduring through the suffering. Now, that makes sense, right? Because when suffering comes your way, you've got a choice. Suffering always presents you with two choices. One way, despair and unfaith. I'm despairing in the midst of my suffering and I'm just not going to trust God anymore with this. If this is what comes, forget it, God. That's one option. The other option is in faith and trust endure, persevere and cling on to the hope. And actually, as you do that in the midst of the suffering, you know what happens? You hold on to that hope more tightly, don't you? Because you're in the middle of a very bad situation. So in faith, you hold on to that hope and your, your hope grows. It's not that you hope for new things, it's that you hold on to those things so tightly now. And you become a person who is filled with hope confidence in that sure future, a longing for that future in faith in Christ. And that starts to infect and, and colour your life, your decisions, your conversations, the way you understand the terrible situation. You're in. See, through suffering we can grow in hope if we endure in faith. So they're the two ways we can grow in hope. But the other thing we're to do with hope is to hold firm onto it, which I've just mentioned. But you can see it here. I'm going to read this, this beautiful passage from Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. He says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He's opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, and then He has a whole lot of lettuces, or let us is, not green vegetables, okay? Right? So you get the logic of what he's saying, right? We have this confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, he says, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now that's an interesting sort of idea. You would think, right, and I've sometimes heard Christians almost say this, look, Jesus is coming back super soon, like any moment. Jesus is coming back really soon. So, frankly, why are we at Sydney Uni, why are we getting together to study the Bible together as Christians? Like, do that at church on Sunday, but on campus, frankly, just tell people about Jesus, right? That's what you need to do. Jesus is coming back. It sounds good logic, but it just doesn't fit with the Bible, unfortunately, at this point. Paul's logic, oh sorry, not the writer of Hebrews' logic here is, because the day is approaching, you need to meet together as Christians even more. Every day that he's coming is closer, you need to, you need to get together more. Why? Why? Because 
you need to persevere to the end if you are to be saved. And you need the encouragement of God's Word and Christian community to persevere to the end. How tragic would it be if you gave away the faith before the end? So all the more we need to meet together. Why? Because I don't want you to fall into sin. And that's exactly where he goes. It makes sense of the passage. He says, verse 26, For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who had violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you see, saying, we've got to keep meeting together because I don't want you to fall into sin. And you shouldn't want me to fall into sin. So we need to keep meeting together around the world and encourage each other all the more to love and good deeds as we wait for that day so we might persevere in faith and be saved. And then he goes, verse 32, But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison and you, joy, you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. For you need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He's saying, when you first became believers, you had it together. You had it together in holiness and generosity and love and faith. And so don't now give the game away. Remember what, maintain it. Keep going in it. And then he gives you this encouragement, verse 37. For yet in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so are saved. So that's what our hope does and that's what we should do with hope. Grow in it and hold on to it, persevere in it. I want to finish then by talking about hope and the desires of our heart. This is not just about activity, this is about longing, desire. Now, one of the things I love about annual conference over the last couple of years is we've had some uh, fantastic, um, I don't know what you call them, they're basically a soap opera that we watch here on the main stage, isn't it? Like it's a, it's a soap opera, it's a skit, it's one of the lovely things about the last couple of years, we get, we get to laugh together. Uh, when they first started writing them, um, there was some thought, oh, we need to sort of try to connect it into the talk, and um, sometimes it was fairly obtuse, that connection. In fact, um, I never actually perceived it, but then, you know, I'm, I'm a science graduate, so what would I know? But it's, and now it's, we, we just do it for fun, really. It's a nice opportunity to laugh together. 
and rejoice in the creativity that God's given, given us as the body of Christ. Um, but here is a connection that I've just made up. <laughs> that, that beautiful skit that we've watched over a couple of sessions, it's all about longing, isn't it? It's all about longing and the desires of the heart. And I think that's the right place to finish this conference. What's the longing of your heart? What's the real desires that God's placed within you? What are you longing for? Human love is beautiful. It's an incredible blessing. And yes, I understand that longing. I hope you have an even greater longing than that though. That the deepest longing that actually shapes your life and your actions is not just to win the love of another human being. The deep longings of our hearts by the work of the Spirit is that God be all in all. And so in our hearts we cry, bring it on. Bring it on, Lord, already, bring it on. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope... We were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait eagerly for it with patience. The hope that we have is a glory that far outshines our present struggles, no matter how awful and tragic they are. The whole creation, including ourselves, is eagerly awaiting with groans and anticipation as in childbirth, for the beautiful life that is about to come. That's the hope in which we've been saved. That's the goal, the end, for which God has saved you in Christ. And we wait eagerly for it, even with patience. And that leads us to our final point then, I think, hope-filled prayer. If you have this longing in your heart, if this is the great desire, then, then there's one prayer that you pray. Maranatha. From 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. It's very odd, I mean, it's a very odd actual moment in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. See, because Maranatha is an Aramaic phrase. It's an Aramaic phrase that means, Come, Lord. And it's very unusual, given that Paul was writing in Greek, it's very, very unusual to include an Aramaic phrase if he's writing in Greek. It only happens a few times in the New Testament. One of them is where um, they record Jesus saying, Abba, when he's praying. That is, 
Father, which is an Aramaic word, right? And that was the language that Jesus learned as a child. It was his heart language was Aramaic. And when Jesus prayed, he prayed, Abba. And so revolutionary was that, that it's got, it got carried across. And so even when they're writing in Greek, they use the word Abba. And then translate it so that you understand, Father. It was such a profound thing. Here is another moment where Aramaic breaks in. Come, Lord. Now, what, why would it be there in Aramaic? I, I, I suspect that the reason is because this goes right, right, right back to the very first Christians. And maybe even the teaching of Jesus himself to his disciples. What's the prayer you pray? Come, Lord. Maranatha. It is the desire, the longing of our heart who know Christ, that he would come. But you know, it's not just an empty wish, is it? It's not just a prayer of, of vain hope or possibility. It is a prayer that reflects this certain future. And so listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 22 and be deeply encouraged. He who testifies about these things says, that's the Lord Jesus, he says, yes, I am coming quickly. What a great promise. We pray, come Lord, and he says, yes, I am coming. Your prayer will be answered. And so what can we say other than what John says? When Jesus says, yes, I am coming quickly, he says, amen. Come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, the God of hope, please fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing that we might overflow with hope in the power of your Spirit. And we pray, come, Jesus, come. Amen.